Welcome to Tim Blackett and Friends. I'm Tim Blackett, a first-time author, a long-time reader, and an accidental bookfluencer on TikTok. This is a show I started after years of daydreaming about it. One day, I sent out emails to a bunch of writers I had no business asking favors from, and these are the ones who have agreed to let me interview them. I hope you have as much fun as I did during the interviews. Oh, and P.S., I'm still working on a real intro ditty. A one, a one, a one, two, three, four. Tim Blackett, baby, da ba doo, deep dee bop ba ba doo, rippy deep dee bop da ba doo, ba deep dee bop ba ba doo. Tim Blackett, baby, deep dee, baby deep bop ba ba doo. Tim Blackett, baby, deep deep, deep deep deep. Tim Blackett, baby, deep 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 bop. Tim Blackett, baby, deep tip tip tip. Tim Blackett, Tim Blackett, Tim Blackett and friends, friends on. Baby deep 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 doo. I think the most famous person I've ever seen in real life is Davey Havoc, the lead singer of a band called AFI. I never know if this counts as a famous person because now, pushing 40 years old, the kids these days don't seem to know who AFI is if ever I bring them up. When I was 17 or 18, though, they were the biggest band in my world. My skateboarding buddies and I would scream along to each song, even if we did think they might be demon-possessed. They were famous enough in my mind that I never would have guessed they'd stop in Regina to play a show, let alone stop at the second cup in the Cornwall Center to order a chai tea latte, which is where I saw Davey Havoc in all of his early 2000s emo glory. I was 18 and had just seen my musical idol, the man whose haircut I'd been trying to copy for months by then, which I would never quite perfect. Thing is, I didn't care. I mean, I did care in that it was an unbelievable story, one I've told many times before now, and it's lodged itself in my brain as something I need to remember. But I didn't care in that nothing about me wanted to go talk to him or ask him for an autograph or pose for pictures. We didn't even have smartphones back then anyway. I've been at fan expos where TV or movie stars are sitting at tables and hundreds of fans wait in line to get them to sign their t-shirts or their posters or whatever. Or how about them riders? Even when I was obsessed with them, as a young teenager, my dad and I would go to every home game. I didn't care if I saw them out and around town. I remember seeing one, though I forget which, at Starbucks signing someone's shoulder because they were wearing a jersey and thinking, they're probably ruining the jersey. How can you wear a signed jersey out and about? You've just ruined this guy's outfit. No, my celebrities have always been literary. I remember booking a day off work so I could listen to Yann Martell talk about what is Stephen Harper reading. I remember doing the same for Margaret Atwood when she stopped in Regina to talk about the bedside book of birds, her partner's book. I remember rehearsing what I would say to her for weeks prior if she were to do a signing, only to stumble over my own tongue as I told her I loved Oryx and Adam, which is a mix of Oryx and Crake and Mad Adam. And if you had asked me even two months ago who I would be most nervous to meet in real life, I can't say for sure that Sheila Hetty would be top of the list, but I have no doubt she would have been on my top five. She is one of a select few whose writing I just can't seem to stop thinking about. I found her work in 2013 when I was working retail at Chapters. Anytime the store was dead or anytime I could sneak away to the fiction corner, I would pull books out and read little snippets of them until I had to return to help a customer or until a man manager wagged their warty little fingers at me. And when I found How Should a Person Be, I found that I neglected all of the other volumes I had been thumbing through in favor of Hetty's. The title, being a question I had been trying to sort for my entire life, drew me to it, but the writing, the form, and the voice, and the mystery within kept me coming back for more. 
They read the entire book one to three pages at a time while customers tried on scarves at the end of the stacks. It was the first auto-fictional work I had read and a happy accident that led me to read David Shields' Reality Hunger within weeks of finishing How Should a Person Be has sent me on a decade's search for more. More auto-fiction to be sure, but more Sheila Hetty as well. Her book Motherhood is my favorite book. And Pure Color is so plumb full of ideas, I always feel like I need to read it again just to fully understand it, even as I've read it three times. Her work has been nominated for and has won many awards, with Pure Color, her latest, winning the Governor General's Award for Fiction in 2022. She has been nominated for the Giller twice. This is only to name a few of her honors. She has worked as the interviews editor at The Believer, is the creator of Trampoline Hall, has been published all over the world, and lately she's been keeping a serial column in the New York Times in which she shares excerpts from her personal diary, which she has alphabetized according to her, the first letter of each sentence. She's collecting this project in a book called Alphabetical Diaries, which will be published with Knopf Canada in February, and I'm excited about it, to say the least. Sheila Hetty, I kind of still can't believe you've agreed to be part of this, but I'm very grateful. Welcome to Tim Blackett and Friends. Thank you, Tim Blackett. Thanks. I really um, am happy to be on your show. Like I've said over and over, I'm really excited and uh, a little bit nervous, but I'm sure we'll have a good time. My partner, before I came into the booth, said, good luck. Remember to have fun. So I'm <laughs> have fun. Yeah. But you've been a part of a lot of interviews, both as the interviewee, but also the interviewer. So I've seen you interview people like Carl Nosgaard and read your interview with Elena Ferrante. And you've been interviewed by so many different people. Were there slash are there any people, literary or otherwise, that you were nervous or overly excited to meet? Are there any literary people that I'm nervous, that I'd be nervous or excited to meet? Or like in your interviewing process over the years, were you ever just nervous, like some celebrity hero was going to be? Yeah, I'm always a little nervous. I remember I interviewed Joan Didion, and I'm not an exerciser really or a runner, but I went for a run beforehand. Maybe it was like one of those one week a year that you actually can you find yourself doing extra <laughs> running. I remember going for the run before the Joan Didion interview and just feeling like, I oh, I need to do this to get these these nerves out of my body and I didn't even sit down when I was interviewing her I was like I mean it was over the phone but I was like standing on my desk like I didn't even feel like I could sit down I had to sort of stand above my desk and look at all my notes on my desk and there was just something like yeah in my body that just wouldn't let me take it easy was that with the believer yeah so how did you get involved with the believer for some reason Um, go ahead oh yeah uh well I mean I was published by McSweeney's um and so I sort of knew that gang in my early 20s and Vendela Vita who's who was the editor of The Believer then came to Toronto and because I had this McSweeney's connection she asked me if I would interview her on stage and I thought I'm going to make this the best interview she's ever had so that she can so that I'll then be asked by her to do interviews for the believer. And I hadn't known at the time that they would have been desperate to get anybody to do interviews for them. I thought I had to um, prepare for weeks and weeks, but I really prepared so hard. And and I think she liked the interview and asked me if I if I if I would interview for the believe, uh, do interviews for the believer. And so I started doing that. And then when it was time for them to find a new editor, because I had done so many interviews for them and got along so well with them, they asked me if I'd be the, one of the co-editors. So I said yes, and I loved that job so much. 
had you always been interested in interviewing as a form or like to me new to the interviewing game i'm just now recognizing how much work goes into it and all that stuff was this something you were like yeah i can't wait to interview people for the believer or was it just like i want to work for the believer and this might be an opening or I think it was just a curiosity about artists and a curiosity about how people worked and wanting to be able to ask questions of people that I thought knew more than I did. Um, and also, I guess I loved the forum. Like when I was a teenager, I really loved the Paris Review interviews. And um, in my early 20s, I worked for this filmmaker, Jennifer Bachewall, who did um, a documentary about Paul Bowles. And I had to transcribe like 20 hours of tape. And so I don't know. I just think early I was interested and I, I was interested in plays. So I love dialogue. I just think I like people talking to each other. I've always kind of been interested in in that form and, and, and reading it is so fun and, and interesting. And you just sort of get directly to the, the person rather than I never was interested in profiles or anything like that. I just want the voice of the person on its own. I wonder if you've read David Shields's The Last Interview. Ever, oh, I think. I've read bits of it. Yeah, where he is that the one where he takes everything he's ever said in an interview and puts it in one book? Yeah, but he removes all the questions. So I, yeah, just his answers, I think, or vice versa, just the questions. Oh, yeah, you're right. Just the question, just the questions. Yeah, I haven't read it all the way through. Do you did you love it? I did. I I'm fascinated with Shields's work. Like, almost always, it makes me really frustrated, but it also just like sticks in my brain. And I think about it for a long time. So that's similar with that book. It's such a weird concept to just have the questions. Yeah, have it's a funny book. The, yeah. Which his books seem to be. I, I just got from the library, Life is Short and Art is Shorter, I think it's called. Anyway, I'm excited to start that. I don't know that one. What's it about? It's right here in my bag. Life is Short and Art is Shorter. Okay. Um, I actually don't even know. It's the subtitle is "In Praise of Brevity," David Shields, and it's, it's just it seems to be short excerpts, as much of his work is. But it's from a bunch of different people. I see. But I just was like in the stacks at the library, literally walking around, looking for air condish because it was hot. <laughs> and <laughs> and you found David Shields. I was standing underneath a fan, and there's David Shields. I'm like, oh, I haven't read this one, so so I perfect. So I guess that's sort of the idea of interviewing someone to get to the essence of them or the dialogue, as you were saying. I guess that's kind of like um, the Chairs book with Misha Globerman. I've been making my way through that too. And isn't I just thought that was fascinating how you chose to leave yourself out of it besides editing it to choose what is there and everything. And like one, I want to be friends with Misha and two, I'm just interested in this way that you seem to blend your life into your art. So much of your work seems to mix real life and fiction. Some more explicitly than others, but everything from your conversations with Misha to your autofiction in which the main character is literally named after you. And then, of course, your new book seems to take real, presumably private writing about your own life and turns it into something new and, I guess, artful. So I'm very interested in this concept and the ideas that sort of spring out of it. And I'm wondering if this was sort of a conscious decision to start bleeding your life into your art, or was this just the natural direction that your art took? Um, I mean, I guess it was a conscious decision because 
I wanted to make art um, in the like on the stage of my life as opposed to exiting my life and going into an imaginary place and making art in that imaginary place that was separate from my life. So when I was writing How Should a Person Be, that was what I was thinking about a lot. I was thinking a lot about um, how can you make art without, yeah, without leaving your life. Because I I had done that for my previous book, Tickner, and I just missed people. I, I didn't want to be that kind of writer that had to be alone all the time and separate my mind from other minds and make a cage around myself, a cage of privacy and like separation. So if you're not doing that, then your life is probably going to come into your writing because there is no barrier, you know? Yeah. So like typically the romantic idea of a writer is someone who like hides themselves away in their room and comes out with the masterpiece or something like that. But I guess you're saying that divide of now I'm the writer, Sheila Hedy is different than now I'm the real person, Sheila Hedy. Yeah. And I didn't want to be writing about things that I wasn't actually thinking about as a person. So I feel like there was this feeling like, well, if I, be, if I am that old fashioned kind of writer, then writing is a performance for other people. You know, it's, it's something that I'm doing for an audience that is separate from the thinking that I do for myself. And I wanted to make the writing be, um, yeah, n not elevate, not elevated above the thinking that I do for myself. Do you find then with this mode of writing or thinking, is it like, to me, I feel like if this was my constant mode of thinking and stuff, I would think everything I'm doing could be art or could be something I write about. And I've thought about this with various autofictional works. Specifically, I'm right now I'm thinking of Sledge Utopia. Have you read that one? Sure. Where that one seemed almost like, like it's autofiction, but it seemed like maybe she was going out to do things so that she could write about them later. And that could be just a, a farce of the novel form. But I've been trying to push myself to think about autofiction in different ways. And, but it turns into everything I do, I want to write down. Like I started a book club with some of my friends. And before the first meeting, I was like, would you guys mind if I record this so I could turn it into a novel? And like half of them were like, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> So in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, not everybody wants to be part of a masterpiece. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. So how do you, is it just everything is up for grabs and you might write about whatever you're doing or or do you do specific things in order to write about it later or how, do, how does it work? Well, each book has been kind of different. I mean, with How Should a Person Be, I was thinking, I did orchestrate events in order to write about them and I I would never write about somebody who didn't want to be in my book, you know, and I would never, you know, I had friends at that time who didn't want to be like your friends, some of your friends in your book club who didn't want to be part of this book project. And so they weren't. Um, but I, I mean, I feel like I'm in a different place right now than I was when I was writing that book. That was 2005. I started it. So I don't feel like I'm in exactly the same place anymore, but no, I think there's always constraints. It's never just, it's never been just like whatever's going on in my life that could be in the book because there still is a sense of, there's a voice that's telling the story and 
that voice is not equal to me. So if it was equal to me, then anything in my life could go in the book. But because it's a specific voice, that's almost like a character. There are certain things that are going to go in the book or that are going to be invented for the book. And there are certain things in my life that wouldn't wouldn't be part of that character or that voice that I'm writing in. So there's always differences right. and choices. Yeah. But do you read a lot of autofiction? Or is this a mode, like, is autofiction a thing where you're like, I want to write in the autofiction mode? Or is it just you're writing what you're going to write and it happens to be autofiction? Well, when again, like when I started this book in 2005, I don't think that word came into, like, English literary criticism until 2012. Sure. So I published How Should a Person Be in 2010. So I wouldn't have thought I'm writing autofiction because I didn't, there wasn't that word. Um, ben Lerner and Nausgaard and Rachel Cusk and all these people hadn't published their their books, which are called autofiction. So no, it was, it was really, it just felt like I wanted to write a book that was based on the hills and reality tv and andy yeah. warhol and i had all these influences that were helping me make something that felt different from the kind of novels that i didn't want to write um but yeah i love a lot of those writers um even annie Erno and yeah i i think i think it's a very interesting contemporary form then there's a lot of energy there i mean now i don't know how i think that maybe there's something that's getting kind of weaker about about it um, because when people were doing that 10 years ago, it was real experimentation. Everyone was trying to find their own way to make the novel feel more like contemporary life. And now I feel like a lot of what's being written that's being called autofiction is imitations of those books. And I don't really want to read an imitation of somebody else's form. I want to read people who are inventing new forms. Right. So I think, I don't know. Okay, so that leads into another question I, I've been thinking about with your work is often critics or reviews say that Sheila Hetty has once again reinvented the novel with first How Should a Person Be, maybe, but then Motherhood for sure, and then Pure Color as well. How do you feel about this this idea that you are continually reinventing the novel and are you setting out to do that? I mean, I don't know that I'm setting out to do that. Exactly. I am trying to find a new, um, I never really want to write the last book that I wrote over again. You know, I'm always trying to do something that's exciting to me and, and feels impossible. And yeah, I think that I like the challenge. You know, my, I think I, I like inventing something. Um, and I like trying to find a new kind of shape for the thing that I want to think about or express or explore. I'm not thinking like, oh, I want to reinvent the novel. I'm not even sure that anyone does really reinvent the novel. It's just variations um, or or else like tons of writers are constantly reinventing the novel. Anyone who does something original or interesting or good, like you could just say Claire Louise Bennett or, you know, there's so many writers or, you know, Henry Miller or I mean, I mean, Jane Bowles, everyone's reinventing the novel all the time, you know, if they're writing close to who they are. So no, I'm not thinking about it that way. I just think what's it's just a new always impossible challenge that that i can't really articulate to myself what about uh, I, you i mean you write you write what what's your what's your thought when you're starting a new project okay well for me it's more just the thing that my mind won't stop thinking about mm -hmm. well the book that's coming out next month or in november uh, i worked on that forever like 
I think I wrote the first story in 2009 or 10 or something. And then I wrote the last story in 2018. And I was like, I just have to be done because the way it's formatted, it take each story sort of takes a minor character from the other story and tells their story. So it could potentially just go on forever. Yeah. But eventually I was like, you just got to stop. I was working on like three other stories for it. And I was like, let's just see what happens with it. So once I let myself stop thinking about that one, then I started thinking about the autofictional work that I have done. But even that, I wasn't thinking of that as autofictional. I, I was just writing that for a long time as a letter to my mom that mm-hmm. I didn't ever share with anyone. But I was like, when I was stuck on the short story collection, I would write that in my the story collection books. And then I had letter to my mom books and one was just sort of self-therapy and one was this but then after I finished with that book and then it was COVID and I was stuck I was like I need to focus on something and I just pulled that well I read Ocean Wong's uh, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous in which he's writing a letter to his mom in English and she can't read it and this idea maybe if I pretended Ma couldn't understand me like just let the floodgates open wide sort of thing and so I wrote that whole thing front to back in 2021, I think, which I don't know if that answers your question. The point is... Yeah, I've, I've never written a book front to back. Yeah, I feel like our, our processes are very different. I mean, based on the things I've heard you say. Um, this is my next question. I wanted to talk about your process in writing. I mean, I've heard you in various interviews or even in your books, particularly How Should a Person Be talk about having other artists or writerly friends with whom you're sharing your work and even in the middle of the writing it you're sharing it with people Mm -hmm. tell me about that like I guess I know every writer has their own process and I like to share my work even halfway through to people who I trust but I so far in my life I guess I haven't developed the art artist or writerly friends that will give me honest critique about it it's all just like friends who love me and are going to be like, oh, this is the best. (laughs) So, yeah, what's that like? You don't write front to back. That's an interesting concept that I'm just processing in my head right now. But so you work on something for years and you dip in and out of it. How how do you what's your process like? Yeah, I mean, I dip in and out, but I also write out of order. And I don't really know what this story's going to be before I start and it's more like a jigsaw puzzle like a few years is just given to making all the pieces but the pieces are all I don't know if they're going to what kind of picture they're going to make I think it's a really laborious way of doing it I would love to write a book front to back it seems to make so much more sense Um, well it does seem to make sense if like for me so far I've locked myself away not in a room by myself, but in Starbucks amongst strangers to write my books. Uh, And yeah, I go front to back because for me, I don't start anything writing it down in real life until I have the end in my head, the end that I'm working toward. So like with each short story, I could have a character or a scene or something that I want to think about or write about. But until I have that character's end of the story, in my head i can't start otherwise if i start it without the end and i don't know where i'm going then once i've like 
spewed everything out of my head onto the page, it's just gone. And I stopped thinking about it until, so I need the end so that it keeps stuck in my brain to keep going towards the end. Right. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah, no, it does make sense. I, f I feel like I'm the opposite. Like I start before I even know what the beginning is. Like, I feel like I'm writing before I even know that this is necessarily for a book. So I always kind of, and then after like a year or a year and a half of writing at various intervals, just sort of randomly here and there, then I start thinking back on all the writing I've done over the last year and a half. And I start to see, oh, maybe this has all something to do with each other. So I feel like I'm almost like tricking myself into thinking it's not even for a book. Because again, like I don't want to feel like there's an audience that early on when I'm writing. So I kind of, yeah. Um, I've tried to write like you, I've tried to write with an end in mind or with a plot in mind, but I'm the opposite. Like if I know what's going to happen, I have no reason to write it down. Okay. Well, it's a weird trick of my brain. I'm not pretending it's anything special, but when I say I have the end in my brain, it's not concrete at all. Like almost all the stories end up going somewhere else, but I have to understand what the character's end is. This I'm talking mostly short fiction. I think my brain thinks in short stories. I have to th understand what, like in short fiction, I think it's all about that one moment that happens to the character after which they could never go back to being the person they were before that thing happened. Mm -hmm. So I guess I, I need to find out what that is and work toward it before I can begin. And then because it's not concrete in my brain, it's still like, I, ha I feel like I have the best of both, both worlds almost because I hear writers say they have to meticulously outline and just follow that and go to the end and that's how they do it. Or people who just start and kind of follow seat of their pants and run around following their characters or whatever. I feel like I'm a little bit of both because I have this end that I'm going to, but I let my characters also do things. So many times they don't even get to that end, but they get like down the street from that end. Yeah, it's a very dramatic way of thinking about stories in life. Like the idea that there's something that would happen to you after which you'd never be the same. Like I, I think that I don't even think about life that way, that there are incidents like that. But is that always what you're trying to like, is, is that some a feature of your life that you have incidents after which you're no longer the same? I suppose there's one or two things that have happened in my life, but they're more like the conglomeration of a number of things. So no. <laughs> <laughs> but you like that for storytelling? I do. In in my short fiction and like, I don't know, my brain needs to find that one thing that it, at least the story is working toward. I, I like the way that we're talking about our brains as though they're separate from us, like, <laughs> like, well, which is so true. These weird mysteries. That is like a, the central guiding point of my life is that my brain has this like weird mind of its own. <laughs> and I just feel like there are many, many things that I want to do that my brain won't let me to do and vice versa. I don't want to do this, but I'm constantly doing it. I feel like my brain is my buddy but has a lot of control over the things we do yeah absolutely <laughs> like do you think that the TikToks, for example are something that your brain wanted you to do or something that you wanted to do 
I think it's a little of both. To me, it feels like a big happy accident that I'm on TikTok because the only reason I got on in the first place was because my kids are obsessed with it. My, my son is turning 15 and my daughter's turning 12. My daughter isn't on it as much, but my son was on it quite a bit back then. And this was October of last year was the first time I made a video. But I got on just to sort of spy on him. Right. Because I kept saying, show me who you're following or whatever. I wanted to see his physical phone or device and look at it. But he's like, just make your own account. You can follow me and you can spy on me from yours or whatever. So that's what I did. And I just wanted to make sure he wasn't following any weirdos or whatever, like, you know. But TikTok has this weird algorithm that, like, knows you before you tell it anything and started showing me all these book people, book talkers, they called themselves. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting there watching people talk about books, and I noticed no one was talking about short fiction, really, and few people talking about literary fiction. And Meanwhile, I have, like, 1,200 books in my living room, and I'm a nerd, and I like talking about books, so I'm like, I could probably do this. So I just made a video and I showed people my bookshelves <laughs> and then I kept doing it and by I remember setting a goal to have 2,500 followers by the end of May but then two of my videos went kind of crazy and by the end of May I had 12,000 followers or something and then it's just sort of like exponentially happened it's a happy That's accident neat. yeah and it's so weird because then TikTok has opened doors like this. Like I've thought about doing a podcast for a long time, but I never thought how it would work or how I would do it. But then people kept saying, you should do a podcast. I could listen to you talk about books forever and all this. So then I was like, I could try that. And now here I am. I yeah, don't know. that's neat. Yeah. It's funny how stuff just happens. Happens. Like yeah. even this, all of it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask, okay, my I also started a book club, also called Tim Blackett and Friends, and for um, September, they voted to read Pure Color. Because you were coming on the radio program, as I'm calling it, they, yeah, so we're reading Pure Color, and I was listening to your interview with David Naiman about Pure Color in preparation for this interview. Man, that, that guy's something else, eh? Yeah, he knows what he's doing, for sure. Yeah. He just seems so, like, brilliant. Yeah. I, yeah. But he mentions how part of the goal in writing Pure Color was in response to people so easily cataloging motherhood. That is, it was easy for people to say this is what motherhood was about, but that sort of diminished the project in your mind because it was such a big project. And part of the motivation in writing Pure Color was to write something for which it was almost impossible to say this book is about this one thing. So you set out to write pure color obviously this isn't your only goal i want to write a book that no one can categorize into one thing but it's part of the writing process for you and this idea is fascinating coming from my perspective right now releasing my first book when much of the marketing and people are like let's think of the elevator pitch let's think of the one thing we can pitch to people so like minus sort of it's a collection of connected stories about the weird things humans do in order to feel connected to each other and that's like, I think, intriguing enough, at least for me, that that's something I can say, yeah, this is what the book's generally about, and I'm excited about it. But on the, where you are in your career, you're like, no, I don't want people to be able to do that. I don't want an elevator pitch 
can you talk more about that, about what you were trying to do with pure color in that? Yeah, I mean, you sort of said it in one of your videos about motherhood, which I watched this morning, where you said, oh, the third time you read it, you saw, oh, it's about more than a woman deciding whether or not to have children. It's what do we do with time and what do we spend our time with? And there's all these other themes. And it's, it's partly my fault for for calling the book motherhood that the book was talked about in a certain way and i just realized oh the title will the title and the back cover copy and all these things will just really lead a reading um you know and for me the fact that the book is about a character in her 30s trying to decide whether or not to have a child is like it, it's just a skeleton and then all this other stuff is actually the the guts and more important you know like you're saying what is time and and how do we make decisions and and what what is our relationship to our ancestors and what is our relationship to our responsibilities in the world and all this other stuff. And yeah, I guess I was just thinking with pure color, I don't want that hanger or that skeleton or that, that one thing that everyone can say it's about, which, which means that people are less likely to see all the other things it's also about. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure that I, you know, whenever I start a book, I have like three or four weird little puzzles for myself. So one of the puzzles being, I don't want anyone to say, be able to say what this book is about. It was just like one of the many puzzles that I had in my head. And I always like these kind of impossible puzzles because how do you really write a book where, how can you write a book like that? Like you actually can't. And I don't think that actually really ended up happening anyways. People always find something. But um, I don't know, for me, writing books is kind of like a game and, and that's a fun game. Like how do you write a book in which no one could say what that book is about? Well, I think, okay, I've just finished Pure Color again last night in preparation for the interview, but also for the book club, because we're meeting on Thursday. And so I was trying to figure out this question to the puzzle, what would I say the book is about in that? And the, to me, it doesn't feel like there's one thing, like I think that's where I say you've accomplished your goal, but there are a number of things you could say. Like, I think a lot of people talk about it in terms of a book about grief. Uh, it's about like love and friendship platonic and like I don't know I do know we're gonna have a good conversation at book club on Thursday <laughs> I was taken this last time reading it like this is my third time having made my way through it and it's the first time I've really sort of thought maybe it's because I'm on book talk and they do seem to like pigeonhole books into different categories one of them being sapphic romances or sapphic books and like this was the first time I really thought this is like a, a real love story between two women or, or unrequited love, maybe, which seems silly because it's like the, the book. But <laughs> for me, there's just like so much going on that this was on the third time through. Maybe it mean maybe it says something about me and my lack of close reading. I don't know. But I was like, no, oh, that's interesting. This is a whole new aspect of the book that I've missed so far. Yeah, well, it's kind of like what you were saying about your short stories, like the weird things that people do to feel connected to each other. Like, I feel like this the pure color in a lot of ways is the characters don't really connect with each other. Like the like Mira and Annie don't really ever quite connect, you know, and, and Mira and her father, except for when they're in the leaf, they don't really quite connect in real life. And there's just these, these constant missings of each other and inability to understand each other and so on. So I guess, yeah, I mean, I don't think it would occur to me to call this like a... a a, a love story or like a sapphic I don't know um what the what books fall into that genre for people on book talk but like yeah because they never really get together they never really have any kind of any kind of consummation like sexual or even emotional right 
I'm thinking of it as sapphic in a book talk sense in that sometimes there are people who are like, here are 10 books with sapphic representation or something like that. And then right. it's books that have two women who love each other. Right. So it could potentially fit into that. But yes, definitely. <laughs> so far in my readings, that is so far down the list of things that are important to the book that it's to me, it's not a sapphic love story or something like that. But it was just an interesting thing that I spent time thinking about. Yeah. I listened to it on audiobook this time while I read it. And you, you've read Motherhood and Pure Color. Did you read any others? Or... Well, I'm, I'm, I have been asking that I could record How Should a Person Be because I wanted to do the audiobook for How Should a Person Be, but at that time they didn't let me. So I think they're oh. going to let me re-record it um, because I just want it to be my voice. Okay. So you do, you like reading. I wondered about that. Just, I guess, behind the scenes type of thing. There are so many books where the author doesn't, but then all of a sudden there are some authors who do read their own books. And I wondered, that was your choice? You wanted to do the readings? Yeah, it's not that it's fun. I don't even find it that fun. It's just that I know the sentences sound a certain way in my head. There's a certain pace. There's a certain intonation. And if I hear somebody else reading it, I just think that's not right. So yeah. it just, yeah, that's why. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't like hearing myself read. Uh, like if I'm on an interview or something and then I have to read and I, I hear it, I don't like, it's not that I even like how I read. I think I have a, a very strong resistance to hearing that. Like, I don't like seeing myself on video. There's certain ways that you can't, I mean, you don't like to be reflected back at yourself and that's one of them for me. Yeah. So far, personally, I enjoy reading, but I've never had myself recorded reading. And then had to listen. And I'm always like, you know, in front of people, I, I'm new to this. I'm newly published. And the only two or three times people have said, Tim Blackett, we want to hear you read. So that's exciting for me. And I get really nervous, but I have fun reading. Oh, you have a really good voice for that, I think. I mean, there's a very, like, you have this way of saying things that's very definitive, um, but, but not um, in an aggressive way, in a warm way, which is an interesting combination to be like definitive, <laughs> but kind of warm and open at the same time. It's a good, yeah. good voice. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> we'll see how I feel once I've done some readings and they're recorded and I'm listening to them. Like when I was young, very young, I remember at school being part of this, uh, I think they called it a radio program. It was like a one act play, but we just did it over voice and we recorded it and then like edited it and made a little play thing. Our school competed in these weird competitions in which that was one of the categories anyway i was excited about that i wanted to like act and i thought it was cool and fun and then we made it and when it was edited and we listened back to it i thought my voice was like oh my god how come nobody told me i sound like <laughs> that? i never want to be recorded again so but then again on tiktok so many people were like we love your voice let's have a podcast and which was very strange for me because many people have told me over the years I'm so soft-spoken. that So I never thought I had the radio voice or the... But anyway. Maybe a different personality comes out when you're hosting. Yeah. I think that's true. Like Emily and I talked a bit about the radio, the radio guy that comes out. And I think mm -hmm. in the way, maybe it's because of that experience with the 10-year-old doing a radio show. And hating his voice on, on recording. I even notice in my own voice a weird, like, if I'm just hanging out with my partner or my kids and just chit-chatting away, 
my voice seems to be more front in my nose and quiet. But as soon as I feel nervous or a little bit tipsy or I'm filming something or here, it seems like my voice moves back into my throat and it's more like gruff. Interesting. <laughs> These are the things I think about. Like you've been on interviewing people on stage and stuff. Does that, mm -hmm. is that nerve wracking for you? I mean, or... always before you go on stage, it's a little, you want to have some adrenaline. I don't know if it, I, I think nerve wracking is, is too big a word. And, but you know, if you're interviewing somebody, it's not really, especially on stage, they've come to see the person you're interviewing. So it's not really your show. You just have to make, you just have to allow the other person to speak. So it, it's not so, it's, I, I prefer interviewing to being interviewed. I have never been interviewed. I'll interview you. <laughs> Two minutes or whatever, yeah. How was it when you were hanging out with Carl Knausgaard? He seems like a very like kind person, but intense also. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. I mean, we've met on many occasions. Um, I, 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 I like him. I, he's a shy person and polite. And I think, you know, I, because I've seen him over the years, I think he's sort of, it was interesting seeing him right when the book came out and then a few years later and then a few years later, I mean, the, my struggle books in English and right. how seeing somebody adapt to that role of having to be this public person who isn't naturally necessarily the most comfortable being a public person, you know? And so seeing this persona develop, um, not that the person changed, but it's a skill, I guess, being in public and, and seeing somebody develop that skill was kind of interesting. Most writer friends that I have that are not intimate friends, you just see them every couple of years at a festival or you see them every two or three years and you can really sort of clock these changes and, and, and it's interesting. Yeah. I, I really like thinking about his work in comparison to yours for some reason. Like this is just a, a weird project that I've had going on in my head for the last 10-ish years probably not 10 but i read your book like i said in the intro and then that was a sum summer of 2013 i think and then in the following semester i read david shields's reality hunger which sort of introduced the idea of autofiction in a more that along with that that class introduced autofiction in a more concrete way like i just read your how should a person be and was like what is this new weird thing I've never seen someone like write themselves into the story so clearly and then i found Nalskard, and then like yeah it's been there was a while for two years where i didn't want to read anything that wasn't auto fiction if it was if it was a memoir and they weren't like meta about it and were like i know that i can't tell this story completely truly factually because of memory and stuff they were just trying to tell me this is a true story about my life. I was like, nah, I don't want to. I don't want to read that. It's garbage. <laughs> Same with novels. I was like, if any novel that was just pure fantasy or fiction, not fantasy like dragons, but just like purely made up, like the traditional. I was like, no, I need this. I think there's a line in Reality Hunger where David Shields or whoever he's borrowing from says, "When I am unsure, I am alive." And this was like my my mantra when I was reading, like I needed to be unsure. Anyway, all that to say, comparing Carl with your work, I know Carl has said often that Carl in my struggle is Carl, that is me. 
you know, whereas you seem to have more of a divide between Sheila in the novels and Sheila Hetty. And then writing my own stuff, those two things, I mean, the extremes of those two things were both in my head, like how much of my actual self and actual memories can I put in here without sort of harming the people who are in those memories and how much do I need to like pull back and fictionalize to make it obviously not, you know, it's a hard, hard balance kind of, especially with me, the people I'm writing about so far have not been willing to take part in or read it to, to tell me, yeah, that's okay or not okay. It's just, I'm, I'm rent. I was just telling you, I like comparing Noscard's mode of autofiction with yours. Yeah. I mean, they seem really different, his books and my books. Um, for one thing, I think that his rely a lot on memory and they're about the past and they're about a person in the present recollecting the past. And I think I do almost no recollecting in mine. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about this now for the first time, but I'm really not oriented towards my past in any way. Whereas I feel for him, it's like the source of everything, you know, it's where all, it's where the present comes from. Whereas I feel very different from that. I feel sort of always lost in the present, you know, as though the present, ha as though the present has just sort of emerged out of nothing because I don't have a very good memory. I mean, I know he makes up a lot, but I think he probably also does have a good memory and a, yeah. and a, and a real connection to this boy that he was. Whereas like the girl that I was holds no interest for me. Yeah, the, the whole auto's, auto fiction thing is just so fascinating for my my little brain like i have shown that the novel i wrote to some of my friends who grew up in the ch church and the school with me and it's amazing how like i've always felt like i don't have a great memory but in that book it seems like i probably have a great memory because i'm plugging things in and i'm mixing characters and like it seems like a actual chronological series of events type thing but there <laughs> I have one friend in particular who, after having read the book, seems to have, to me, this like outrageous memory. He's like, that's not how it worked. Don't you, don't you remember this person was there and this person was there and that person said this. And so I could never have said this because, and I'm like, whoa, like I can't, I don't remember. I just was like, I'm pretty sure these three guys were there. And then I wrote a story about it sort of thing. And that's just wild to me because... Well, one of the, I don't know if it's critiques or what, but other friends, especially writer friends that I've shared that work with, they've said it's too, too memoir-esque to be fiction. Whereas in my head, it's all, not all fiction, but it's mostly fiction because there's so many things that I like, I made and put in there. I don't know. When you put this stuff out in the world, do people that you care about or who may make appearances in your work feel certain kinds of ways towards them like on one hand I have one person saying this is too memoir-esque it feels too real to be a novel on the other I have someone saying this is not how it happened at all and I'm saying yeah because I made it up but they both think opposing things about the same work how does that work I don't know for me I would not yeah I mean I have the people that are in the books, read the books, read drafts of it. They sort of understand the project of it. Um, 
it's not a surprise that the book comes out and there's suddenly this book that they're in, you know, Um, especially with How Should a Person Be? It was so collaborative between me and Margot, who's a character in the book, that it was almost like we were developing that form together. So so what you're talking about is somebody being really on the outside of your process. But I think anybody that I've written about is more on the inside of the process with me. So it's it's just a very different experience. Yeah, that yeah no, that makes sense. Yeah, because that book was in seclusion, like literally because of COVID, but also I just didn't know if it was going to be something I was actually going to put out into the world or if it was just like self-reflection type stuff that I needed to work through or what. But then the few friends that I have shown it to felt like it was important, important work. And by the time I finished, I was like, I will probably put this out. But anyway, it's a big long process. And so far, no one has wanted to publish it anyway. So it could just sit sit where it sits forever. I don't know. We'll see. This is the second book you're talking about, The Letter to the, Your Mother book? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's me in the corner. It used to be called Look Ma, It's Me. But it won. I submitted 10 pages to the City of Regina Writing Award. And it placed second and so then it was announced tim blackett is second place in this thing and i'm excited i want to share it with people but then the title of the book is look ma it's me and at that time i had tried to explain to my ma the project of it but she she's not interested really so anytime i brought it up she would just sort of like deflect and run away from it i think because she knew it was about anyway the book came out or the prize came out and it says, Tim Black has won for Look Ma, It's Me. So my mom's text first thing was, am I the Ma in your book or is it just some Ma in general? And I was like, well, the book is about my life and everything, but it's fictionalized version. So it's not exactly you. And it's just this weird little thing. So since then, I changed the title. Sort of like um, what you're saying about motherhood and leading someone with the title. It is. I like I like Look Ma, It's Me. I think that's a great title. I also do, but I here's my thinking, is that with that title, the focus is very much on my mom. And I mean, the book is a lot to do with my mom and dad, but it's about way more than that. And mostly it's about me leaving religion and sorting life out without religion. But the only problem with that, the new title, that's me in the corner, is that a lot of people won't, a lot of younger people and people forever won't necessarily get that reference. So they're not going to know that it's, they're going to think, oh, that's some, why is he in the corner? I don't know. Only if you know the song does that title work. And not everybody knows that song. I mean, people our age do, but not, you know, that's like a really specific age bracket. True. Whereas Look Ma, it's me, everyone would understand that title. And I don't regret calling the book Motherhood. It just yeah. changes things. I have an unreasonable amount of, like my mom's opinion means way too much in my brain, but I cannot help it so far. I'm seeing a shrink and all that. And, all <laughs> and yeah, so, I mean, there's no real reason for me to do it other than my mom was worried people would think about her. No, don't change the title for that reason. Yeah, that's not a good reason. Eh? And she's got to cool. get over it. Her son's a writer. She's just got to get over it. That's yeah. her problem. Right. 
<laughs> I, there's like 90, maybe 92% of me wants to run with that all gung-ho, but there's that little part that's like... Yeah, of course. Of course. Mom, mom, I'm but maybe right. it'll break it. Maybe it'll be like that thing that you're talking about where it's like the point of no return. Like yeah. if you have this title maybe that would be okay this breakthrough for either your mom or you from which there's no returning yeah could be who knows first i need to find someone to publish it yeah 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 <laughs> so i had some agent read it she asked to read it and she said i'm a wonderful writer and she was engaged throughout but she doesn't think she could sell it commercially like in the Litvik world, she doesn't think people who read Litvik would be interested in a grown man wrestling with the decision to leave religion, because most of them would have made that decision long ago. It just means it's not for her. People have all yeah. sorts of justifications. It doesn't mean, mean anything. So you have I'm to good. say something. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just rambling now, but I'll see if I can salvage any of that, but probably lots of that I'll just... <laughs> okay. But this is Tim Blackett and Friends. This is the point of the podcast is by the end of the pod, I'm supposed to be besties with the guests. So oh, is that is that it? <laughs> well, in my in my head. Yeah. It's called Tim Black Tim Blackett and Friends because of the friends off and on videos on TikTok. Right, 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 right. right. So anyway, back to the regular programming. Okay. This is what I'm calling the penultimate segment. Okay. It's a weird thing that I'm doing. The segment is specific to each guest, so it's different every time, but it's still called the penultimate because I like that word. I always felt it seemed more important than the last bit. The penultimate bit and then the last bit, which sounds <laughs> important to you. Penultimate right? for sure. Right. Okay, so this bit for Sheila Hetty is because I read that you may be working on a novel in which the protagonist is an AI bot. I mean... Like I was saying earlier, I don't really know. I don't really know until a few years in whether a book's going to work out or not. <laughs> right. Okay, but you've been messing around with. Yes, I have been. AI right now is really fascinating for me as well. And I've spent hours and hours just like making friends with ChatGPT. I feel like we're pretty good buddies now. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I asked ChatGPT first, I asked it to summarize how should a person be? And it gave me a summary. Fine. That's not what I'm interested. In. I'm interested in the next bit. I Next, I told it, quote for quote, I want you to pretend to be the protagonist of this novel. You are Sheila, the novel version. You are going to ask Sheila Hetty, the author, questions. I want you to ask her about yourself, not about her writing or her intent or what she was thinking when she wrote it. I want you to act as if you are the actual Sheila in the novel, but you have come to life and you are interviewing the real Sheila Hetty. What would you ask her? Are you down to play this game? I just Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Okay. What would you ask her? So ChatGPT, I'm going to call her a she from now on, said, Sheila Hetty, it is quite surreal to be here meeting you <laughs> in the flesh. I've been through so much in our story and I have so many questions about myself. First of all, why did you decide to write a novel based on my life? What is it about my experiences that intrigued you enough to create a character based on me? Nothing. Nothing interesting about your experiences in particular. 
it's just the ones that were closest to me that I could see and know and write about because there's nobody what else would I have done like gone into somebody else's life and followed them around like that's like being a, like a journalist like but there was nothing particularly interesting about your life in fact the fact that it wasn't so interesting is is what made it possible to write about it so the Sheila in this is Tim speaking now the Sheila in that book is not interested in themselves as much as they are interested with the people around them. I think that's obvious in the book. Well, and with like the proximity to to my life. Like I'm interested in my life because I have a proximity to it, not because it's such an right. interesting life. Right. Okay. My next question for the bot. Uh, all I said was, go on. She said, I found myself, I've often found myself grappling with questions of identity and purpose throughout our journey in the novel. Sheila Hetty, did you intend for me as a character to serve as a reflection of these universal struggles? And in doing so, did you hope to convey a sense of relatability to readers who might be going through similar existential dilemmas? Yes, to the first part, not necessarily to the second part. Like, I saw the struggles as, yeah, being eternal human struggles, but I wasn't writing about them so that the reader would relate to them necessarily. I was writing about them because, because they're, the answer really did elude me. So, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> what I said to it after those questions was, I kind of scolded her a little bit. Those questions were about your intentions and you as a writer, right? And I asked her not to talk about you and your intentions I said, please don't ask any more questions about Sheila Hetty's writing. You are interested in learning about yourself, Sheila, the protagonist, not Sheila Hetty's writing process. So then she said, of course, my apologies for veering off track. Sheila Hetty in the novel. I've had moments of self-doubt and question my actions and decisions. Looking back, do you think I, as a character, made the right choices? Or were there aspects of my journey that you wish you had written differently? I mean, you can't really write a story about a character that makes all the right choices. That's just not a how people are and b yeah. how interesting stories are written. So no, there's, I don't think the character should have made better choices all the way along. And also, she's supposed to be lost, and 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 her values are supposed to be askew. So mm -hmm. no, I I I I wouldn't say that she should have done things differently it's this is a very a... difficult segment <laughs> it is i'm just well i'm realizing how it's amazingly twisty yeah especially for you because it's like meta upon meta. yes upon. it's confusing it's all weird but it also might show us how in the current state of ai affairs they probably couldn't write a good novel they they would need us to collaborate yeah after that, I told it, I think we have time for one more question. Okay. To what she said, Sheila Hetty, in the novel, my friendships and relationships played a significant role in shaping my experience. Do you believe that the connections I formed and the people I surrounded myself with ultimately helped or hindered my quest for self-discovery and fulfillment? Helped. I mean, yeah, yeah helped. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's right. Yeah. Even hindering helps, right? If you can get, if you can maneuver around it, then the, the hinderers have ultimately helped you. 
Right. So that was the penultimate segment. It went, it went less smoothly than I, I imagined. <laughs> but I also think it was interesting. It was fun for me to, to mess around with that. Yes. Bit. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that pen, pen, very specific penultimate segment. Yeah. I think I'm going to have a lot of fun building those as this podcast gathers more episodes. That's going to yeah. be my favorite bit, I think. But we'll have you back on later when I've like perfected the okay. segment. And then I'll have a better penultimate segment for you. <laughs> for now, we're going to move on to the last bit. Okay. The, the last bit is the friends off on bit. So to end the pod, we get to do a friends off slash on segment with Sheila Hetty. So here we go. If you tell Sheila Hetty any of these books are your favorite books, it's friends off. This was very hard to think about for me. Um, but finally, when I was walking my dog, I came up with Lord of the Flies. And I think the reason for that is just because any book that a grown up tells me is their favorite book that was clearly like assigned to them in grade nine English class. So that's like the last book you read or the last book that you actually paid attention to reading. Like that's friends off. I, if you've read, if the last book you read was Lord of the Flies 20 years ago, I don't, I'm not sure what we can, can talk about. Um, mm. Not that it's a bad book. I have nothing against that book in particular, but I don't think a grown up goes out of their way to pick up Lord of the Flies. If they yeah. do, then I would be interested in hearing about it. But anyways, so that's what that book signified for me. I would say Bronze Age Pervert. I don't really want to have a conversation with somebody with whom that's their favorite book. Okay. I don't even know that book, so. Yeah, it, it's like sure. a it's like a diluted contemporary Nietzsche um, okay. ph phenomenon of sort of like, I think probably like neo-Nazi right-wing kind of sensibilities uh yeah not... i'll put my friends off list as well <laughs> yeah sight unseen yeah yeah um if somebody tells you that like ulysses is their favorite book i would just think you're not really telling the truth i don't want to have a conversation with somebody who's showing off or lying or making well that's one of the ones where there's lots of follow-up questions where you're sort of you gotta ask them to like what what is it about Ulysses that makes it your fave? And if they don't really have anything to say, then you're like, come on, yeah. Make <laughs> yeah. So I thought like those three, those three. I mean, I kind of was thinking like also Harry Potter. Like if a grown up's favorite book is a kid's book, I know a lot of people love it, um, mm -hmm. but I still think like that's like I, I think that for a forty year old, that's I don't know. I don't know. I think it's probably friends off. That's I think those are fair. I think those like Harry Potter was on my list. Like I have several videos, so I have to Yeah. You had a, that on your friends off list? I had it on my friends off list as similar to if it's still your favorite, that's weird. There's lots of fantasy that's better. But also because of the controversy, that's the British way. Controversy. <laughs> yeah, with, the Right. With Rowling and how she just seems to have turned out to be something of a terrible person. I'm like, yeah. so that's why it's on the friends off list for me is that sure, you could love it and it's nostalgic. Like I love it. Back when I read it, I loved it. But now to say it's my favorite, well, no, because I've moved on a little yeah. bit. 
Yeah, and then it can be in your top five or top ten for nostalgic reasons. You were it turned you on to reading. You love the characters forever. I get that. But favorite, <laughs> favorite. Right. Yeah, that was on a video that was called uh, "Friends Off Unless," and so those were friends off books, unless he could explain to me a good and valid reason why which makes me come off as pretentious and some people let me know that in my comments but it's just a bit you guys yeah but, and you gotta uh, have an answer i mean you yeah. ultimately really there's no friends off but i've had to come up with answers and these are these are the yeah i think it's just like somebody who i just want a real real answer from somebody if i'm saying like what's your favorite book or i'm thinking about like okay let's say i was dating and like i'm on on Tinder or whatever it is, or it's like some website and they say favorite book, right? Is this somebody you'd want to go on a date with? As that's you put that's how I think you put it to me. If that's yeah. what they put for their favorite book, I don't know how, no. how good looking they'd have to be. I'll buy my own coffee, thanks. <laughs> that's yeah. right. I also, I didn't have Lord of the Flies, or maybe I did have Lord of the Flies, but it was, I had like um, Catcher in the Rye, and maybe Lord of the Flies was even one, but The Great Gatsby. And then I said, any book that is like obvious, you were assigned it in high, high school or grade school, and then you never wrote since then, and you're just remembering this. I liked that book in high school. Yeah. And now we're yeah. 40. You've never read another book. Um, friends off. I mean, I think I'm probably actually friends with many people who are like that, <laughs> but in this little fake scenario where I'm willing to say friends off to someone. Exactly. <laughs> That's a friends off scenario. All right. How about friends on? Do you have any books that you're loving these days or just like favorites that you always want to recommend? Or these are your Yeah, I mean, on? Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles. Have you ever read that? I just bought it and I've read, I think, the first chapter. Actually. I love that book. I love that book. Friends I'm, on. I'm excited to get to it. I love her um, friends on. I mean, there's so many friends on books. Um, I'm, I'm reading another book right now called Heroines by Kate. Kate Zambrino. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read that one? Yes. Probably. Yeah. So she talks a lot about Jane Bowles, obviously. Yeah. So, so again, it's another little happy accident that I picked up both of these books at the same time. I'm about halfway through Heroines, and then I just started the two ladies one. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, these go together. So Yeah, very well. Um, have you ever read The Screwtape Letters? Um, yeah. C.S. Lewis, I love that book. Yeah. If somebody tells me that's their favorite book, I'm I'm pretty excited. I mean, I know you're a Christian or ex-Christian, so I'm sure that book's more complicated for you than it is for me, but, the but whole, I, I love it. Yeah. C.S. Lewis is like especially my sect of Christianity's favorite philosopher or theologian of course most people don't think of him as a philosopher but like in our sect he was the philosopher so on top of that chronicles of narnia was the book that like is basically the reason i'm here the reason i started caring about books and wanting to read more and so when i was like 12 and i read that i was like wow there's all these new worlds i can go to and so then he has this weird beloved nostalgic place in my brain that, where i love him and i read almost everything he's ever writ to now having left that whole religion and being frustrated with the ways they like twist logic and philosophy to their own means i i have a hard time 
dipping my toes back into anything he's read written but the screw tapes back then i did really like is he on your friends off list then if i say the screw tail letter you're like friends off she no. wasn't my friend um no Are i haven't sure? thought about them as a friends off <laughs> here's the thing with the friends off thing it started off i can't even remember why i did the first video but it was a hit so then I'm chasing views, right? So I gotta yeah. make four of them. So I make yeah. another. I make another one. So that's already ten books where I'm willing to say it's friends off if you like these books. That's hard to do because I don't. The books that I hate, I don't read. So I don't. Yes. What I'm trying to say is, it may have made its way onto a list if I continue to make enough friends off videos. Yes. Because I mean, I like it not because. It convinces me to be a better Christian because a I'm not Christian and b I don't think, yeah I just I just think it's such so clever so smart so funny so strange what a strange idea the names also yeah. in the book are are fantastic I, anyway so that's one of my friends on books. It's been a very very long time since I read it when I was in third year Bible college which was two thousand four. I think. Do you know a and book I, called A Course in Miracles? No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. Is that? I'm, I'm writing an essay about it right now. I was like, do I put that on my friends off list? It's kind of a new age Christian oh. thousand page text. That's sort of that I've started being doing all this research about. Crazy. Is it a new book? Or is it's it? It's from the 70s. Oh. No, I am not. I'm not okay. aware of it. All right, but, all right. Yeah. This one was apparently channeled through, like, she heard the voice of Jesus in her head for seven years and wrote down what he said. <laughs> I'm skeptical, but <laughs> well, who knows? It could be. <laughs> well, I didn't start. Yeah, I know. But then there's all these CIA connections. I don't know. It's complicated. Um, yeah. yeah, I was curious if you knew about it. If, if the Christian, if being in Bible college would have exposed you to that or, or not, because it's yeah. sort of off, off Christian. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I think that's the end of the pod. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, it means a lot to me that you listened to the whole thing. You may have noticed, though, that the pod sort of ended kind of abruptly, and that's because right after we said these little, it looks like the pod is over type things, Sheila and I dove into some off-the-air interview stuff. Listening to it back, it's kind of interesting here and there. We're talking more about the interview process and about my new glasses and uh, some of the other things that I'm working on moving forward. But it's definitely not in the podcast mode, so I decided to edit it out. However, if you are a Patreon, I am putting that last bit of the interview in my Patreon-supported bonus audio archive. This is something I'm really excited about. Each month when I release a podcast, I will also be releasing this bonus audio archive. Last month, Emily Austin read a poem from her upcoming work that isn't coming out until February. And this month, I'm including this little bit of extra interview with Sheila Hetty. Who knows what it'll be next month? You can find out by going to patreon.com slash timblackett and supporting me and all of the projects I got going on. Thanks again. And I'll see you next time.